Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Troubling news, a, a story that we first brought to you many months ago, of course, uh, which was uh, the behavior of uh, a couple of uh, Hamilton-area MPPs towards their staff. Well, now the Ontario NDP are being called out by the union that uh, represents those people. That's uh, The union uh, that represents them is uh, called the uh, Canadian Office Professional Employees Union, or COPE. And uh, they, well, they, they're pretty upset about what's going on right now uh, because the, uh, the, the latest on this right now is apparently one has been fired, one of the employees fired, and they stopped payments for two others. Uh, this is before the human rights complaints were actually heard by a tribunal. Uh, so what's going on here? And is this legal? Uh, let's uh, bring Wade Poziomka into the uh, discussion, lawyer with Ross and McBride here in town. Wade, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. This is a rather bizarre situation. I know you've been following this story, and this is, in many people's minds, is a very unusual twist that we've seen to this. Give me your read on what's been going on so far. Yeah, I mean, I think it's unfortunate. I've been uh, providing legal representation to Todd White in this matter uh, from the human rights perspective. So there's an ongoing grievance with COPE uh, that's heading into arbitration, and there's also a human rights application that's on hold while that grievance process is happening. And in the midst of both of these processes, his employment's terminated. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think it's very unfortunate. What does that do to the process? Um, it adds it adds additional layers. So I'm, I'm sure that COPE's going to be filing an additional grievance for the termination. And uh, my instructions from Mr. White are to uh, file another application with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario alleging that part of the reason for his termination was reprisal for raising his human rights complaints. Now, give me the the lay of the land when it comes to exactly Todd's situation here. I mean, you know, because we've had him on talking about this as well, and our understanding is that he was on, I guess, paternity paternal leave. Is that what it was? Yeah, he was on parental leave. Okay, parental leave. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I mean, I thought the, the law suggested that, or it states, quite frankly, that you can't get fired when you're on leave. You can't get fired for having taken a leave. If you're fired for reasons other than the leave um, that have come up, that, that, that might be acceptable. But you can't be fired even if part of the reason is the leave itself. All right. So but does the employer need to show cause, or can they just arbitrarily, which is what seems to be the case here, just say, that's it, you're gone? Well, that's what they've done. Um, they're going to answer to that, either through the grievance process or at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario or both. Um, and, and so we'll see, we'll see what, what comes out and what they say was the reason for termination. But again, if any part of the reason for firing him was the fact that he raised human rights allegations and he pursued those, uh, or he filed an application with the Human Rights Tribunal, then from my perspective, uh, that would be reprisal. Yeah, we don't have any word on that yet, but uh, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, that, that seems to be the indication. And I think that's the general consensus from a lot of people that, that do know the, the facts of this story. Yeah, and I mean, I think the, the Ontario NDP's conduct speaks for itself here. The party waits until after the election. It fires them on a parental leave in the midst of a grievance process, and now Paul Miller's wife is running against him for a seat on the Board of Trustees. Um, now a single father of two, his career has been taken from him. Uh, his former supervisor's spouse is pursuing his elected seat, provides a minimal honorarium. His entire income's in jeopardy. So, uh, yeah, it speaks what, for itself. What does ha- talk to us about the process here, Wade, if, if, when this tribunal actually does hear, because they, they did say they were going to go to arbitration. So I assume this is going to be game on for all three of these employees at this stage. How does that process unfold once the arbitration begins? Uh, it's 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 like a, it's like a trial. I mean, before an arbitrator, and so both sides will present evidence, and uh, and, and uh, the arbitrator will ultimately make a decision on what happened and what the the remedy or penalty is at the end of the day. Um, so that process will probably take some time, but but it will go forward. I assume for all three of these employees at this point. Is it binding? And. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's limited amount. There's a limited appeal route, but but essentially, it, it's binding. It's difficult to to overturn an arbitrator's decision. And are, I assume are allowed to to produce information and and, and testimony, obviously. But uh, uh, I would think, for instance, there is a recording of a phone call. Uh, that Mr. Miller made to Todd White. Uh, that uh, obviously we played on this show, and I know it's, it's out there. It's it's it's. Uh, I would think part of this program. Will that be presented at that that hearing? Yeah, no, it, it, that definitely will. And I mean, I I think it's surprising because if you look at uh, legal counsel for the Ontario New Democratic Party's comment to the Toronto Sun, I think yesterday they say the NDP caucus maintains that it hasn't violated the collective agreement or any other law. I mean, we've all heard that that recording. So from my perspective, I don't understand how that statement could possibly be made on the ONDP's behalf. Well, yeah, they've uh, been rather coy about this whole situation, and, and I know that the union uh, is, is suggesting that uh, that the only reason they agreed to arbitration was, to, as you say, to, to put this thing on hold until after the election. And uh, now that the election's over, uh, that they've decided to act on this, uh, which uh, looks a little shady to a lot of people. Well, and let's look at how they've acted. So the last arbitration date, I believe, was in April of 2018 uh, for Mr. White, and no other arbitration date's been set. Um, so he doesn't know what's happening in this process. He waits, the election happens, and then his employment's terminated in August, a few months after. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's it's evident what's happened. All right. I'm, I'm getting, getting into wordsmithing here just a little bit, Wade. But, I mean, the story that we've seen, a couple of different versions of it, uh, indicates from the other employees from Monique Taylor's office that they, the party says they are no longer being paid. Uh, is is that a euphemism for being fired? Uh, no, I don't think that they've they've been terminated. I think that they're they're on an unpaid leave, um, and you'll probably know I'm also providing representation to both of those individuals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so from my perspective, it, you know, could it potentially be a termination? It, it may be, but they haven't terminated their employment. How were they informed about this? I believe it was through COPE, their union. Okay, so oh, so the union told them. By the way, you're not being paid anymore. Well, I think if there's been discussions between them and the union. The union would have reached out to the NDP caucus, and uh, would have been it would have been confirmed that they're no longer being paid. I just want to mention to our listeners, by the way, we also reached out to COPE today, but uh, we have not heard a response yet. I'm hoping that we can uh, hook up with them a little bit later on and get some details on how, and how this is going to proceed. Well, when, you, when you're going through a situation like this, Wade, and representing these, these people at these hearings, the arbitration hearings, uh, is is the the goal here the intended goal uh, to get the job back? Is it is it to get proper compensation? Which which road are you going down here? So typically in a situation like this, where a unionized employee's been fired, you're looking for both. You're looking for reinstatement and uh, lost wages that that have been incurred. So th- there'd be both uh, likely that COPE's going to be seeking in the arbitration process. How practical is that? I mean, given the situation here, I, w- I would think that both environments, for, from the standpoint of the employees anyway, the ag- aggrieved employees here, is a rather poisonous environment. Yeah, I mean, but, but Mr. White's employed by the Ontario New Democratic Party, right, not by, by Paul Miller himself. And so there's other opportunities outside of, of Paul Miller's office for Mr. White potentially. And I mean, even though it's not practical, practical. think of that from the other perspective. If reinstatement's a viable option, but an employer always knows we're going to terminate you and, you know, the relationship's so uh, degraded that, that you're not going to get reinstatement, what does that say about the right to have reinstatement? So, I mean, I think in most cases where, where somebody's terminated and reinstatement's being considered, the relationship's broken down, but it still doesn't mean that it shouldn't be ordered. Is is there a track record here? Is there a, a, a series of previous cases that indicate which way the tribunal may go in a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, there's jurisprudence. I don't fully understand all of the reasons uh, in detail that, that the uh, Ontario NDP is alleging they have to terminate Mr. White's employment. So that's something that we're going to be exploring in more detailing and, 
in detail and something that's going to be in our, our pleadings once we flesh that out. I, I know, Wade, in other uh, legal proceedings, uh, it's, uh, I, I believe it's incumbent upon, for instance, uh, you know, the, both sides to present their case or present evidence. I mean, is that a situation like this, or are you simply going to hear the other side of it when you finally sit across the table from each other? In the arbitration process, I mean, there, sometimes there's uh, disclosure, but it's, it's often limited. So often during the arbitration process, you're hearing stuff for the first time. In the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, it's a little bit different because witness statements have to be exchanged. So you usually know what's coming to some extent before you get there. Um, you know, you know, this will proceed to arbitration uh, from my perspective, and whether or not it goes to the Human Rights Tribunal after is going to depend on what's dealt with in the arbitration. And by that I mean if the arbitrator hears the human rights issues and deals with it, then we're not going to be permitted to go to the tribunal after that. It will be over at that point. If the arbitrator doesn't hear the human rights issues, then we'll have the ability to, to reactivate and, and carry on with the tribunal. And, and will that tribunal actually make the decision as to, as to what they want to hear and what they don't want to hear? Um, to some extent, I mean, they can they can limit evidence. Really, it's up to the parties, though, what evidence they call, as long as it's relevant. And everything you've heard, including the recording, is going to be relevant from my perspective. Yeah, I, I would think that, uh, you know, excluding the human rights aspect of this would be somewhat uh, of, of a problem right off the bat, because that seems to be the basis for this whole, this whole situation. Yeah, and my understanding is they're not excluding it, so the human rights aspect is, is being dealt with through the arbitration process at this point as it moves forward. Uh, and we've, we're told that these are going to be September dates. Uh, you anticipate this is going to be a long process? I, I can't imagine that it'd be September dates. We're in September already, and Mr. White hasn't been given any set dates for arbitration, so I'd, I'd be surprised if there was September dates. I think that's probably not accurate. Okay. All right. Again, this is why we wanted to go over some of the stuff that's been reported so far to get some sense as to where we're going on this. So it's probably yeah. going to be, would you anticipate in the fall then, or is that, I, I, we don't even know, I guess, the calendar for these things as to, you know, what they're doing and when they're doing it and where they're doing it. Yeah, and it all depends on the arbitrator. I'd say probably late fall. Some arbitrators you can get a date with in a couple months. Some arbitrators you're booking a year out, right? So it, if there's no date set already, it all depends on the arbitrator's availability. Is, is there any concern from, from what you've heard anyway from any of the other employees in these offices? Uh, n- no, not from, not from what I've heard other than, than the three uh, that, that you're referring to today. All right, because obviously you wanted... That doesn't mean there aren't, it just means that they... Yeah, I, I, that's why I'm saying, have you not heard or have heard of, of anything like this? You always wonder about precedents in situations like this uh, and, uh, and, and as to whether or not it's going someplace else. Uh, I guess we won't know that, obviously, until we uh, get some of this information presented to us right now. Uh, this this seems to be, a, 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 in many people's minds, though, Wade, an open and shut case. And, and I'm not trying to sit here and prejudge it, but, I mean, you know, we've talked to Todd White about this. We've heard the f- tape of the uh, the phone call that, uh, that Mr. Miller made uh, to Todd White about this. And uh, we've certainly seen some of the evidence from the people in Monique Taylor's office as well. Uh, I, I guess what we're looking for right now, rather quizzically, is, is what kind of a justification they can actually present for any of that sort of behavior. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know that I'd be able to speculate. But from my perspective, we've heard some of the evidence. It's It's been on a recording. Now, having said that, uh, MPP Miller certainly has the right to due process, and I think Todd respects that, and this is a process that, that we'll go through. And uh, the, ND, the Ontario NDP has the right to provide an answer, and so we respect that. What it will be, I can't, I, I can't speculate on, but... but. Is it, is, we'll it the, is it the same goal, Wade, for all three of your clients at this stage uh, for compensation and to, and to actually uh, maintain or uh, employment or at least be relocated to someplace else? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the ultimate goal for, for all three of these individuals is just to be treated with respect in the workplace. I, mean, I, I don't know that it's necessarily about a big pot of money at the end of the day. I think it's about the ability to go to work and, and work and be respected by their supervisor and, and feel comfortable in their workplace. And I think that's what this is really about. But this is, so you're dealing with the Ontario and NDP at this stage. And you're also... Uh, sorry, yeah, so the, uh, the applications against the Ontario NDP... Um, and against uh, MPP Miller for, for Mr. White's case. And, and MPP Taylor, of course, in the case of the other two employees at this stage. That's right. All right. And, and they'll be presenting uh, their testimony as well, I would think, at this sort of a hearing, too, because uh, those are rather serious charges as well. One of them, of course, uh, uh, has been on record as suggesting that uh, Ms. Taylor tried to force her to uh, file a complaint against another employee. So, I mean, this is a, this is a rather poisoned environment that seems to be uh, being described here by these employees. It's, uh, it's going to be a rather interesting hearing when fi- things finally do start to unfold here. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll have some factual findings. At this point, they're, they're allegations and, and they're in the application. Of course. But hopefully, at the end of the day, we have some findings on, on this, these issues. How, how quickly do they rule on these, typically? Uh, when, when, after, when all is said and done, the testimony is done, uh, is, is, it, is it a quick turnaround where you get a, a decision from them? You're probably waiting, uh, on average, for a case like this, somewhere between three to six months for the decision. Okay, so this is going to drag on. Much to the chagrin, I guess, of everybody involved at this stage. Yeah, I mean, unless it unless it resolves itself, which I think is, you know, Cope issued this press release yesterday, and I don't, I'm not sure they had much of a choice. I think they were backed into a corner by the termination, um, and you know, they, the NDP, the Ontario NDP, from my perspective, tried to spin what Cope did with their press release by saying, you know, they basically said reinstate the member or we're going to do this. So they 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 made it look like a threat, and I think what Cope did was provide a copy of this press release in good faith. I mean, they have. Uh, ongoing bargaining with one another, they have to maintain somewhat of a, a reasonable relationship. And, and what the COPE staff representative actually said is attached as a press release we'll be sending in the media at 12 p.m. tomorrow, unless caucus notifies us that the affected parties have uh, been reinstated with full pay and benefits. So they were saying, I think what I think the way I read that is, look, you've backed us into a corner. Here's a press release that we're going to send out. We understand this is going to get some media attention, and, and we don't necessarily want to do it, but, but you've terminated our member. And so, I mean, you can spin that whatever way you want, but, but I think uh, what they were trying to do was provide an opportunity to have dialogue before that, that release went out. Well, that's what surprised a lot of us, though, when we saw this story in the media, of course, was because when it, in previous in, in attempts to try to reach out to COPE, they'd just say, look, we're not going to talk about this because it, it's in the middle of a process. Uh, but they really seem to have accelerated the process with what they've done here. Well, and, and again, I don't know that that was, that was their decision per se. I mean, if they didn't do it, one of their members now, so the Ontario NDP waits until after the election, and then they fire um, one of their members who's been participating in the arbitration grievance process, and, I mean, if, if they didn't do anything, I mean, what does that say about their ability and their willingness to represent their members? And from my perspective, I, you know, something had to be done here. Have you heard they, from the party? They to go a press release. Wait, have you heard from the party uh, since this came out, since this became public? Have they reached I out to you? I have not heard. No, they haven't. I've, I've heard from them in the media uh, in terms of their legal representative's comments, I think, to the Toronto Sun. Yeah, but nothing personally to you, to yourself, or to your clients at this stage? No personal communication to me, and I, I don't believe any, any communication to, to Mr. White either. Very interesting. Wade, listen, I, I appreciate your candor on this and, uh, and coming on here and talking with us and try to add some clarity to this. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take, Take care. Take care. Wade Posiemko, of course, who is the lawyer representing uh, all three of the people that, uh, that are filing grievances right now. And uh, as I say, this was a, a very troubling story to begin with, and this is a rather bizarre twist to it. 
uh, and uh, highly unusual for the union to, to take this step. But uh, we'll see if this does move the process along, obviously. And it's one of these things that you want to get some clarity to, that get the truth out there, and certainly get this resolved uh, to hopefully to, to the benefit of the, uh, the people that are feeling aggrieved at this stage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When we were talking about Hamilton's economic renaissance and uh, some of the wonderful things that have happened here uh, in the last number of years, we always use that phrase, you know, we've got cranes in the sky. And that, that's an indicator, obviously, that we're building things. And that, that means investment. And that, that's a good thing. Well, if uh, Hamilton's uh, planning committee has their way, uh, you're going to see more cranes in the sky because of some of the decisions they made yesterday. Uh, one of them, uh, I think, was consensus, uh, consensus was that it was a great news story. The other one, uh, surrounded in controversy, and it's the one that's actually, I, I can see right outside our window here in the West End at uh, Main and Longwood. And, of course, that's the old uh, car dealership that used to be on the block here. It's been vacant for the longest time. And uh, Columbia College wants to build a student residence there. Uh, it did cause some consternation, though, yesterday with the uh, Ward 1 Councillor Aidan Johnson. My argument is that always we have to pursue robust, sustainable development, and that this particular uh, project, as proposed, is not sustainable enough. Uh, well, it voted. It was voted uh, by, I guess, a seven to three margin actually to move forward on this. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has uh, always been one of the strong proponents, of course, of uh, this kind of development. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about both of these uh, proposals. So, Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good news day yesterday all around. Well, let's. Uh, I will talk about the downtown uh, issue in just a second here, but let's let's talk about what's going on with Columbia College here. And I'm, I'm sure that in in the mind's eye of our listeners right now, I think everybody knows this piece of property. It's been vacant for quite some time, and and we talked about this a few months ago when Columbia first uh, approached the city about this. Uh, give me your read on what you've seen. Uh, you know, this is a this is a great project. Uh, it's uh, it's been two years in the making. In fact, they uh, they originally needed to have an exemption uh, from the conservation authority to uh, to to uh, you know a minor incursion into uh, some green space that's backing onto the 403, and it's uh, it's it's running through the kind of the 403 corridor and backing right onto it. You you in, within eyeshot of your location, right on Longwood Road. And so their uh, their proposal, I think, uh, you know, had a lot of merit. It, uh, it it did not incur too 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 badly into the uh, the green space. The green space is going to be utilized for for the college in terms of uh, sports turf and uh, and tennis courts. Uh, so they're making good use of that. But they needed to kind of redefine the slope that's there so that they could get some more table land to uh, to actually build out the entirety of the project that they want to do. I think that was a a reasonable compromise. And I know that you know the there were some folks that were had opposition, and uh, you know, I, I don't think it's 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 about sustainability. It was more about Shadow Creek, and the uh, although even though it didn't pass through the property, it was in proximity of it, and uh, and their concern is, and and uh, you know, rightfully so, that that green space ought, ought not to be uh, you know casually kind of thrown away. Uh, I don't think that's happening in this case. This is already a landfill location. It's mostly filled. It's already there on that slope. And so they've asked for, you know, a, a, uh, I guess, a permission to uh, reshape that, that slope so that they can do the project and, and get the student housing project up, which is a real blessing for, uh, for that part of the city of Hamilton and, uh, and certainly for Columbia College. Uh, they have a presence not only there, but uh, up on the mountain, uh, downtown. Uh, they have a number of different uh, satellite campuses, and uh, they continue to grow, and that's uh, that's good for Hamilton. There's a, there's a point to be made here, and I'm going to go back to my term on council, uh, if I could, Mr. Mayor. Uh, and that was when Columbia approached the city about the one that, as you mentioned, is up on the West Mountain. And, and there were right. some neighbors who were composed. That's over by the Shadoklands for people that have not seen it. 
Uh, and uh, there was some concern there about well, student housing and all the con- you know the, st- the concerns about you know value of property, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's a case to be made. As a matter of fact, I think it's a very strong factual case to be made. Uh, Columbia College are good neighbors, and they have been ever since they they, they started working in this community. Yeah, they have been, and uh, they've they've grown you know immeasurably, and they attract students from around the world. Uh, they are a private college. They they're a, they're a business for all intents and purposes, but uh, not unlike uh, you know the. Uh, the college up on the hill, they, uh, they attract, uh, you know, all kinds of students that bring resources to the city of Hamilton. They either rent space or they, uh, they, they, they visit our restaurants, they, they buy the clothes that are here. I mean, they, they add to our economy immeasurably. And, and you know what, and, you know, like, like all student locations, whether it's Mohawk College or Redeemer or down at McMaster, uh, there, are, there are issues that come up because students are students. Uh, they're rambunctious, they're uh, energetic. Uh, they have, uh, you know, a propensity to uh, to party, uh, you know, once in a while, and sometimes that gets carried away. Uh, by and large, we deal with those issues, uh, you know, proactively. Uh, so, so we have town and gown that's happening in uh, in and around McMaster that to deal with some of the housing issues and some of the challenges that happen. Uh, some of the furniture that gets left behind when they vacate, and uh, and some of the parties that happen when they all come back. And so we're right in that kind of sphere right now. But, you know, the, the, the Columbia College has been no different than McMaster or McMohawk, Mohawk or any other. Uh, they've actually been very good neighbors, and they've been very good uh, participants in our economy and uh, participants in our community as a whole. Uh, now, the, the report, of course, when, when staff are, are doing an assessment on this presentation and on this application, uh, let's let's be clear, Mr. Mayor. They do their homework as well, because I know some people are saying, "Well, you know, you're going to throw this fill in here, and is is, is that building going to be there? Is it going to be shifting?" Uh, anytime we're doing anything, because of the wonderful you know topography that we have here, there are going to be concerns. I I know that when they were doing the rebuild on the Jurovinsky Hospital, there were concerns about the fact that the building was going to be too close and it was going to cause the Sherman Access to start to crumble. Right. Uh, there are engineers that are on the job here to make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen, right? Absolutely. This is not <clears throat> just <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> just cavalierly throwing a building up without any geotechnical uh, you know studies being done. They have to do a whole series of studies that uh, that uh, define how that slope is going to be arranged, what kind of footings they're going to have. Uh, they're going to have caissons, in fact, which is uh, actually almost uh, you know as good as bedrock. Uh, all, you know, all of that has to be engineered and uh, and has to be done to the satisfaction of the city of Hamilton and and to the conservation authorities, so that the the slope that they're uh, proposing, they've actually required nine very specific stipulations in their uh, in their recommendation to approve that uh, that really forces the uh, the developer and the Columbia College in this instance to uh, to, to be uh, mindful of all of the uh, the technical issues that are going to come about as a result of this uh, this development. So no, this is not just uh, throwing a building. Uh, someone yesterday said that you know if it's landfill and therefore it's jello and therefore you know the building would just slide away. You know that that doesn't happen in uh, in our community. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 engineering that's done, the geotechnical work that's done, all the requirements that are going to have to happen that uh, land on the developer, it's probably going to cost them uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do, uh, is all in, in preparation for making sure that this building is uh, is going to be uh, you know solid and uh, useful and not going to be a problem into the future. Well, I went through a similar experience uh, back when I was on council uh, representing the Central Mountain in Ward 7. Uh, there was a proposal for a, a condo tower 
uh, right in the corner of uh, Mountain Park Avenue and Wentworth, Upper Wentworth Street. And and again, we heard that that concern at that time too. That well, it's too close to the edge of the brow. You know, it's it's gonna it's not going to be solid enough, etc. And I said, you know, there, I had engineer reports stacked up on my desk saying, well, these guys say it's okay, and they they know this business. So I, I understand where people are coming from in a lot of this situation. But I, I'd like to think that these these bases have been covered before they even make the application. Well, and they are, and, and you know, and so, you know, I, I understand people's, uh, you know, sense of, uh, you know, uh, caution. A lot of them use these uh, these kind of lines and, uh, you know, issues to try and thwart uh, what they don't want to have happen. And, you know, I, I in a general sense, everybody wants progress, but uh, not too many people want change. And so that change actually causes people to do and, and accuse uh, all sorts of things. Uh, we, we don't we don't do any development on, on a cavalier kind of basis. There is an enormous amount of work by the city, uh, by the proponent, and, and by ministry uh, regulations, uh, labor laws, you name it. Everything, everything applies. Nothing is done willy-nilly. And, I, I'm, and I'm proud to say that this one uh, is, is being done pointing directly to the, uh, the notion that uh, the LRT is coming right to their front door. Uh, you know the biggest uh, the biggest infrastructure project that we're doing in the city of Hamilton that's going to renew water lines and sewer lines and roadways and, and buried tran- transit transmission lines and provide uh, you know enhanced transit is uh, is one of the reasons that they're pointing to as to why they're doing this development here because they need that kind of progressive uh, public transportation and for all the projects that we looked at yesterday all of them point to the advent of uh, LRT as a cause for them to move forward. Well, let's talk about the downtown areas because uh, the story, of course, that we carried some time ago was when when uh, your council decided to, to to look at some of the parking lots owned by the city downtown and declare some of them as surplus. Uh, uh, that can backfire because oftentimes those things are going to just sit there vacant because nobody wants to kick the tires or look around. But uh, there seemed to be some people that wanted to move in here just as quickly as you guys could put the sign up. Yeah, so I mean, the last four years we've seen a uh, virtually a 500% increase in in development downtown. So uh, you know, some 1,800 units uh, have have been uh, in, in built or are being built. Uh, that is that is good news for Hamilton. It's not not just about throwing up density. It's about meeting some of the demands in terms of affordable housing. A lot of them are some of them are, are owned, some of them are rental, and some of them are actually affordable housing units. That uh, you know the full spectrum of what we need to have happen in the city. And the beauty of it is, it's all happening on infrastructure that already exists. So we're not talking an urban sprawl situation here. We're talking about the kind of intensification development that uh, we know is part of our sustainability plan. If we continue to sprawl out the way we have in the past, then uh, that that uh, sustainability is going to be challenged. These kinds of developments, uh, at various different uh, heights and various different densities, are are going to be the sustainable path for us as a city. That will generate more tax revenue for us, provide affordable home units, uh, provide home units for people, affordable or otherwise, or uh, you know socially assisted units. And uh, all of that housing mix is so, so very important for our city going forward. So we, we've had a, a real flurry of activity um, because I think people have this sense of confidence that Hamilton's on the move. But this is this is what council had been dreaming about, I guess, and 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 fawning yeah. over for years and years. Was you know we always said, well, you know, if we can just get people living downtown again, uh, and and to their credit, what council has done, I guess, over the last number of terms, really, is is not necessarily try to do the development themselves, but clear the way so that the, the people that want to invest can, and uh, it's starting to pay pretty big dividends for the city now. 
Yeah, and you know, Bill, you were on council when we uh, when we waived the uh, development charges and uh, you know all the application fees for downtown to inspire people to look at downtown. And we knew that it would take a number of years for that to take hold, and that that's now happened. And so uh, now we're seeing that kind of influx of development that we want to see. Uh, you know, at some point we'll probably start thinking about uh, you know pulling back on some of those uh, those waivers of fees. But but for the moment, it's generating a lot of activity, and that's exactly what we intended the uh, the waiver of fees to do back in the day when uh, you and our are on council as councillors. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's taken you know the better part of 15 years to get to this point. Uh, people are now recognizing that Hamilton is uh, is a great uh, investment location. Uh, site selection, the site selection magazine just identified Hamilton as one of the best places in Canada to invest, and 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 it's in part because we're in a a positive environment. We we're making the right key strategic investments. People are recognizing that and seeing Hamilton as an investment opportunity, and that is good for our city. Well, and, and back in those days when the, when the council and their wisdom decided to, to create that, that environment for that by, you know, waiving it to things like development fees and things of that nature, uh, the, the, that was the good news. The bad news is we only had one or two people that were actually uh, doing anything downtown. To their credit, right. and they, they stuck around, and some of them are still investing here. But, boy, there's a lot of competition for these lots now. Well, exactly. And uh, so we're now, you know, attracting what we were hoping to attract, which is out-of-town inner-city developers. So the, the Toronto-type developer or the Vancouver developer or the, the big city developer that's that looking at uh, higher-density developments as opposed to single-family residential are more prevalent now, and they're looking at the downtown available spaces as, uh, as investment opportunities. And, and you know, we're, we're taking full advantage of that, as we should. That doesn't mean we throw away all planning principles or design principles or engineering issues, but uh, but we do uh, you know encourage an an open for business process that uh, hopefully provides a streamlining of the process so that there's a predictable timeline for a developer that wants to come in and do something that uh, he knows what he's what he's up against and how long it's going to take. That kind of predictability has also helped. Uh, developers look at Hamilton in a much more positive way. So we've taken a lot of steps to actually get to this point. Uh, that doesn't mean we want all development to happen downtown. We have, uh, you know, developments happening in uh, at Parkdale and, uh, in, and for, uh, you know, uh, social housing units. Uh, Indual uh, got uh, got an additional 50 units as part of their development at the corner of uh, um, uh, Camp Barton, Melvin, and uh, Parkdale. Uh, so there's another additional 50 units being put in there. Uh, a number of developments happening in Stony Creek in terms of uh, rental properties. I mean, they're happening virtually everywhere, and uh, it's not just about downtown. It's about the entirety of the city, and people are looking at a whole range of opportunities for uh, for additional housing development. But you're you're actually addressing two major issues by doing this. Obviously, intensification, and and that's the the mantra from the the provincial government, of course, with their places to grow document. But over and above that, you as a council now have made this decision that when these developments come along, uh, you you are demanding, I guess, and ensuring that there's going to be an element of that that's going to be affordable housing. Right, and uh, and we did do our fifty million dollar uh, poverty affordable housing plan, and that is certainly inspiring a lot of people to uh, to come to Hamilton and have a look at how they can uh, they can do that. We already have a lot of providers here, uh, you know, the Kiwanis Homes and Indwell, a lot of great uh, great not for profit, um, you know, social and affordable housing uh, providers, uh, and they're taking advantage of some of those resources as well. So it's inspired uh, the kind of. Uh, challenge that we have on the affordable side and at the same time gets the uh, the regular developer to look at uh, you know rental and and uh, uh, owned properties that uh, they can continue to develop here so 
We're looking at the full range, and we're not ignoring any one housing type. And we know that there is, a, you know, it's a significant shortfall of uh, affordable housing units or social housing units, and we're trying to address that through that $50 million plan. Getting uh, get many of the units that are sitting derelict because we haven't had the resources to maintain or upgrade them to make them uh, viable and functional. Uh, we're now able to do uh, that and probably get, uh, you know, a few hundred units back online. And then looking at uh, partnering with uh, federal and provincial uh, funders to uh, to look at more affordable housing units. And we have our $50 million plan in place that we can, we're can we ready to go uh, should they you know, provide us a, a funding platform. It certainly shoots down that myth that had been out there that uh, that you know private sector investors had no interest at all in in building affordable housing units. Uh, as as long as the city comes to the table and tries to partner with them, obviously you've you've made that happen. Yeah, and and you know that's that's the key. I think uh, it, it really needs to be a partnership. That doesn't mean that uh, that we're throwing away the, uh, the the keys to the city. That we're we're providing incentives and uh, making uh, making uh, giving giving uh, developers an opportunity to, to offload some of their costs so that they can actually provide the units that we need. So we're uh, we're in a partnership situation. We we hope and and believe that uh, the federal government is going to come forward with an affordable housing plan. That uh, that's going to provide uh, additional significant dollars to to do even more, and uh, and the good news is we're ready to partner with them because we have our money set aside, and uh, and you know we're ready to roll. So we're probably out ahead of most municipalities in terms of uh, you know having identified some resources that we can move on very quickly. So yes, we're uh, we're, we're 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 looking at the full range, and uh, it, it is inspiring all kinds of people to do more than they might otherwise have done. Uh, and getting an email here from Melissa, who's listening to our conversation, Mr. Mayor, asking, uh, saying, by the way, it's rather lengthy, but she's talking about, we had a great news story about the developments downtown, but said, can the city please do something about the corner of Main and John Street that's been vacant for the last, uh, she says, 10 years. Yeah. I don't know if it's been that long or not. Uh, she's right. It's an eyesore. Now, I know, uh, well, as the mayor, you sit on every committee, but I, I know that that's a concern and has been a concern for, for the planning and active department for quite some time, but that's a privately owned piece of property at this stage, I believe. It is privately owned, and there's a development plan for it. And I keep uh, poking at uh, our staff to, uh, you know, f- do two things. First of all, to to have the developer, uh, you know, make that site presentable. Uh, right now, it's a, it's a scruffy piece of land, and uh, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. And uh, and I'm informed that, and I ask about this virtually every month, that they're on the verge of uh, of starting their development. So. Uh, I know it's been a while. It's been sitting there, uh, you know, vacant and derelict and uh, looking pretty scruffy. Uh, it's right across from our new and revamped courthouse, and uh, I want that development to happen sooner rather than later, and I keep poking at them to make sure that uh, they're on it. So I, uh, I, I fully agree with Melissa. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, it really bothers me that we, we have developers that, that leave these properties that they own and, and are planning to develop but leave them in a state that is, just makes our city look scruffy. So I, I want them to, uh, to put up some screening, something that's attractive, uh, you know, something like uh, what they've done at the corner of uh, Queen Street and, and, uh, and Maine, where they've actually put up uh, you know, promotional pieces that actually makes the, sh- the shrouding look attractive and, uh, and gives you a representation of what's, uh, what's to be there in the future. Uh, I want all developers to do that in the future, and we'll uh, we'll work out some plans to see if we can make that happen. Well, I think the best that property's ever looked in the last 15, 20 years was uh, when they uh, built that whole facade up along Main Street there for the Incredible Hulk movie. I wish they'd left it up. It would look better than what's there now. <laughs> Mr. Mayor, as well, always, yeah, they, thanks so much for the time. Do, yeah, you're welcome. What they do in Europe, Bill, as you know, is they, they have these kind of screen shroudings with images on them. Yeah. And it really obscures the, uh, the entire building, but that gives you a sense of what's coming in the future. And it actually looks quite attractive. 
Well, we'd like to, yeah, well, that's you. obviously policy that maybe planning can start looking at as well. Uh, well thanks as always, Mr. Mayor. We're just about out of time here for this segment, but uh, we appreciate the update. Thank you, Bill. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, heading back into a meeting right now. But good news story. And uh, and the, the Columbia College story, I, I would think, is going to move forward on this. Obviously, uh, once this is endorsed by the whole council, uh, the the people that may have some concerns about this do have the uh, the, the right to go to the uh, well to the hearing. It's not called the Ontario Municipal Board anymore, but uh, the same idea uh, to uh, to give their views on this. But uh, it may not even get to that stage. We'll see. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario has launched a legal challenge against the Ontario government's decision to repeal the sex ed curriculum. Uh, of course, we know that the Civil Liberties Association filed uh, court action some weeks ago, and we talked with them about that. Now the ETFO is joining the fight. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Sam Hammond, who is the president of the ETFO, as he uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Sam, thank you very much for the time. Great to have you with us again. Yeah, my pleasure, and thanks uh, for having me on, Bill. Give me a, a little uh, sense of, of what I, I saw the announcement yesterday, obviously, when, when you guys announced the, uh, the court action here. Uh, talk to us about, uh, about what's going on and, and exactly what you're looking for here. Well, we've uh, the uh, we've asked for a uh, ju- judicial review of the minister's uh, directive to repeal the 2015 health curriculum, uh, and the snitch line that the government has put up. We're asking for those uh, for the curriculum to be kept in place and that the snitch line be uh, uh, taken down. Uh, we think it's extremely important because of the chaos and uncertainty that's been created. Uh, through the process, and there are are several violations or conflicts between teachers' professional obligations uh, with the Education Act, Standards of Practice, and the Canadian Charter of Rights uh, and Freedoms. You also articulated yesterday, and I'd like you, if you could, uh, to to explain it again for our listeners, Sam, uh, about about safety issues and 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 what's not being taught, and, and basically, I guess, the ramifications of what's not being taught. Yeah, well, the uh, the revised curriculum that the government has put in place um, does. It, it's actually a 2010 revised version, but the content in the healthy living section is uh, dates back to 1998, uh, and the uh, curriculum that the government is saying teachers uh, will start using uh, as of yesterday does not include uh, consent. Uh, issues around consent, education pieces around consent. It doesn't include uh, cyberbullying per se. It does not include uh, LGBTQ relationships or, if you will, same-sex marriages. It doesn't talk about gender uh, identities and other human development issues. And we think that for students uh, living in, uh, growing up in uh, today's society, 2018 and the realities that they face, that those are extremely uh, important uh, concepts uh, and information for them to have, particularly the consent piece, particularly uh, the cyberbullying piece. And there's no doubt that with, without those pieces and that education that we feel strongly that their safety and their well-being is in jeopardy. And, and not to mention the fact that we there should be an inclusive education uh, component throughout the province. One of the frustrations I felt with this debate uh, through the election campaign and, and subsequently, of course, the government's decision here, Sam, is context. And, and uh, for them to just you know pick this thing up and arbitrarily toss it out and say, we're not going to do this anymore, seems to be based a lot more on ideology than on pragmatism. But, but the, the reason this was developed and the reason that that program 
uh, was put in place, as I recall, because I did a number of shows about it with you and, and other people in the education field, was to address some of the problems you've just talked about, about cyberbullying, about uh, about teen suicide, uh, about a number of different issues. And, and, and that's why the curriculum was changed to try to reflect that, uh, to teach students uh, about exactly what's going on. Because through education, I guess, is barely the best way to try to inform people and, and, and try to solve some of those problems. Yeah, I, absolutely. I couldn't agree with with you more. That's exactly why it was put in place. And if you go back to the other curriculum, the consultations for that actually started in 2007 uh, to develop the 2010 revised document. And then thereafter, uh, additional consultations, uh, extensive consulta- consultations for the curriculum that's uh, in place now. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, Bill, as you've uh, articulated, that we are, are taking this challenge uh, to the courts because we think those that information and the safety of students are vital here. Well, and, and you just touched on another one of the points that, that I think has caused a great deal of frustration because uh, you just w- used the word about three times there, and that's consultation. Uh, the government's contention and, and the supporters of this move by the government, Sam, of course, is saying, well, there was no consultation. You were part of that. Uh, uh, many of us were part of that uh, when that consultation was taking place, and it's, 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 it's ludicrous that they would simply suggest that none of that happened. Uh, I absolutely agree with you again. Um, that consultation was very extensive. There were some 4,000 parents involved in that. Uh, there were over 30 health uh, organizations involved in it. For example, the Ontario Health and Physical Education uh, Association, OFIA, was involved in that. Uh, medical profession was involved in that. Researchers, fact-based uh, indiv- individuals who, who could bring fact-based information to the table, uh, and all of the teacher affiliates and teachers were uh, very much involved in that process. So to suggest that there wasn't any consultation and that parents weren't consulted is just wrong. Well, and, and I mean, hey, I hear this all the time in, in my line of work, and I'm sure you do in your time in the classroom too, Sam. Is it? <laughs> Uh, you know, just because they didn't include something somebody wanted doesn't mean they weren't heard. It just means it was deemed not to be necessary or they didn't want to put it in there. Uh, there are always going to be people that are going to be disgruntled with this. And, and, I, and I think that's part of the problem that we have here is uh, you've, you've had people resisting the sex ed curriculum from day one. They just didn't want anything talking about sex education or about lifestyles at all uh, in the classroom. And, and it's, it's been an uphill battle to try to get that much done, really. Uh, it, it it has been, and I think what's key to, for us is that, uh, uh, you know, leading up to this uh, with the implementation of the curriculum, and, and yes, for some parents, the, the issue of uh, same-sex marriage, uh, gender identities uh, is a difficult conversation, but there there is in place, and there will continue to be in place, a process whereby teachers would inform parents that those items uh, might be ta- being taught on a particular day, and they had the right to withdraw their students. So th- that was in place. But uh, it's ex- extremely important that when we're talking about diversity and, and, and inclusivity in education that we're ensuring that students are prepared for today's realities. Some of the uh, opponents of, of the curriculum that got tossed out, Sam, uh, of course, are accusing your members of trying to indoctrinate kids. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that, that's uh, absolute nonsense, quite frankly, I'll say uh, straight up, or that uh, we are sexualizing students or that we are educating students to be gay or lesbian. Um, that is just so far from the truth. Uh, it, 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 it's un, uh, unbelievable. 
um, you know, in, in terms of people talking about where also that uh, teachers were talking about uh, teaching masturbation and a number of other items, that's just completely wrong in terms of what's in this curriculum. Uh Talk about the snitch line. Uh, and, and again, this is something that I think opened an awful lot of people's eyes. Uh, it was one thing to toss the curriculum out and say that they had some problems with it, but but to actually initiate a line like this uh, where people can call anonymously. I, I know I've talked to some of your members here uh, who don't want to go on the record because they're concerned about the, some of, some of the, the ramifications of this, but it's got to be a concern, I would think. Oh, it, it absolutely is for our members uh, across this province, and the, and the member that you talked about uh, is a very good example in terms of not wanting to say anything. There's so much uncertainty uh, around what teachers can or cannot say based on the curriculum, but more so now based on that snitch line. Uh, and I used the example of, you know, if, if, a, t- if a teacher is teaching about uh, different families uh, and is talking about a, a male-female traditional uh, family structure and someone in the class says, you know, I have two moms, uh, what does that teacher then do? Uh, and what we've said to them is to use their professional judgment to, in fact, talk about same-sex marriages for the benefit of that student and everyone uh, in the room. But it, you're absolutely right. It has put a chill uh, on the teach on teachers uh, in terms of the intimidation that uh, was behind that snitch line. But if they do that, Sam, and they and they do use their best judgment, do they do that at their own peril? Because the premier himself has said that if teachers talk about this stuff, they there there will be serious consequences. Yeah, well, the the only body in Ontario that can actually discipline teachers uh, under regulation in the Education Act is the Ontario College of Teachers. Uh, the Ontario College of Teachers, for example, does not accept anonymous complaints. So uh, if, if, if Doug Ford is going to step up and discipline a teacher or teachers based on a snitch line, that's a whole uh, other problem that, uh, and why we've asked for it to be taken down. But I want to be clear, Bill, that there are currently... Uh, very clear processes and systems from the school level uh, through school administrators, through uh, school board to the College of Teachers or directly to the College of Teachers to complain about uh, teachers uh, that are fully accessible to parents and any member of the public. Well, and, and that's why we try to get some clarification, even from the Hamilton Board of Education. We talked to the chairman of the board, Todd White, about that last week, and I, I got the impression from what Todd was saying that, look, at the, the, the board's not going to do anything about this. I mean, as he mentioned, there's a protocol in place, and if somebody has a problem with anything that goes on in the classroom, uh, this is not a new protocol. It's been there for quite some time, hasn't it? Yeah, and, it, and it's very effective, uh, I might add. <laughs> So, uh, so that's there, but but now there's this yeah. cloud going over, and it's this uncertainty, and 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 again, I know that we were talking in the hypothetical, but the hypothetical is soon going to become the reality, Sam, because you know some of these things that were included in that curriculum are going to come up in conversation in the classroom. They're not going to happen this week necessarily, but as this thing rolls out, uh, students are going to ask questions, and you know, it, it, you, I think the government's placing teachers in a situation like that where they say, "Well, I'm not allowed to talk about that." Uh, which sounds an awful lot like censorship to me. Uh, it, it is censorship, uh, censorship, sorry, uh, and it and it's extremely troubling. 
when teachers uh, using their professional development, uh, when you look at just the human rights, the Ontario Human Rights Code and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to say to or to put that cloud over a teacher as a professional to say, you will not talk about consent or you should not be talking about gender identities because it's not a piece of this document is appalling. And I think what people need to understand is with any curriculum, whether it's a uh, this curriculum or the financial literacy curriculum, social studies curriculum, uh, literacy curriculum, teachers use their professional judgment every single day in terms of what should be uh, taught and what they will expand on based on teachable moments, for example. Uh, there was a study came out yesterday. I know you've seen it. Uh, the Ipsos poll uh, talked about this uh, sex education curriculum. And I believe that the sample size was about 5,000 adults. So, I mean, it's, it's rather large. Uh, and they said it was about a 50-50 split about, you know, whether or not they should have tossed it out and brought the new one back. But when they started asking those same people about specifics of the of the the revised curriculum that the, the Ford government's tossed out, 85% approval on, on a clause by clause. In other words, maybe for the, some of these people heard that for the first time because uh, there's an awful lot of rhetoric and bombast that's out there right now, and it's really muddying the waters, I would think. Yeah, the the biggest problem is the misinformation uh, that's out there, and and in fact, uh, purposeful misleading uh, of of people in terms of what the content is, what teachers were actually teaching, uh, and what's what's what the issue actually is here. Uh, so as a result, obviously, people are forming that opinion based on some of that misinformation, uh, which may have, uh, I would think, factored into the 50-50 split. But uh, as you started to talk about certain elements of this, and those were elements that were discussed in the classroom, uh, obviously, that uh, I think the only part that really gained and, uh, 65% as opposed to 85% uh, had to deal with things like masturbation. And that's a word, I guess, that just, I guess, bothers some people. But uh, and again, that's such a, a minute little part of the curriculum. You'd wonder why it was even such an issue. But I suppose people that want to tear something down will grasp at something like that and use that as their foundation. Yeah, and absolutely. And and two things uh, I think I think that survey and and I must I may have uh, misread Bill, so I apologize if I did. But I understood that the the survey base was five hundred. Uh, people, which is, you know, in terms of statistically, it's not uh, not really uh, valid in, in terms of in terms of the numbers. But you're also very right that it is, uh, you know, I would suggest social conservatives who are uh, pushing uh, this agenda and who have highlighted specific things uh, that we've talked about uh, and pushed it out there in the public uh, and that misinformation that has caused to, uh, you know, some people thinking uh, this is the right thing to do. You're uh, not alone in this battle, as you know, Sam. We mentioned off the top, of course, that the Civil Liberties Association is also uh, going to court about this, too. Uh, are you optimistic that you're going to get a, a positive result, that, uh, that the courts are going to hear this in a, an expeditious manner? Yeah, we've asked for it to be heard uh, in an expeditious manner, and we hope that uh, we'll be before a panel of judges, uh, you know, preliminary stages before uh, the end of of the month. And we're trying to work with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association on uh, their challenge as well, and I'll be meeting with them uh, shortly to try and coordinate that. From a stand, uh, timing standpoint, though, as, uh, my understanding, though, Sam, is is the curriculum, such as it is, doesn't really roll out for some time now. It's not as if this is going to be taught first week in school. Yeah, I, and that's another misconception. Uh, what most teachers will do, what I did as a teacher, and I know uh, the vast majority of my colleagues do, is uh, they need time uh, with a new class, for example, a grade three, four, or five class, 
they need time, uh, a couple of months, uh, for those students to settle in, for them to get an idea uh, of where each of those students are, uh, for each of them what would be an age-appropriate approach in terms of a number of different subjects. So for most teachers, you wouldn't see this uh, even uh, start to to roll out till, um, uh, honestly, for me, I would wait until January, February of uh, of the new year. I, w- I would talk about other items that are, you know, are not as sensitive, but uh, most teachers will ensure that they're aware of their students, their levels, their understandings, and their needs before they go ahead with that. Sam, we'll stay in touch as this rolls out over the next little while. I really do appreciate the time today, though. Thanks so much for this. No, thank you for the time. Take care. Sam Hammond, of course, the uh, president of the uh, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Uh, very like-minded uh, to, to the civil liberties uh, uh, court action that's going on here, too. And it's not uh, to be characterized as, well, this is what we want to teach, and this is what the government's telling us to teach. Uh, there are serious concerns about the, the health and welfare of students uh, because of misinformation that's out there, which is why they revised the curriculum in the first place. And there's a very strong case, which I'm sure is going to come up in the courts, about whether or not uh, the Ford move here to to replace this curriculum uh, is a violation of the Human Rights Code in this province. So that's for the lawyers and the judges, I would imagine, to decide. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.